This is the hour of doom and bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to Doom and Bloom's Survival Medicine Podcast, a tower of power in a cowering world. And the number one show, by the way, for fans of austere medicine. Because, face it, there's not a lot of competition. I'm Joe Halton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of the award-winning survival website, doomandbloom.net. And together with my wonderful co-host, Nurse Amy, nurse practitioner extraordinaire and purveyor of quality medical kits at altonfirstaid.com, you'll get the conventional medical wisdom, the unconventional medical wisdom, and if you're brave enough to keep listening, the unhinged rants of an old geezer kept preserved in the old fridge in the garage. But hey, whatever it takes to get your family medically prepared for tough times, but to hear all this great information, first you got to listen to this. All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only. Do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Or don't. Things are just awesome out there, aren't they? Sure. But I've got one question for you. Who's the family medic going to be if some disaster knocks all the hospitals out of commission and a family member is sick or injured? Who's going to step up to the plate? Well, don't look at me. I'm just here for the beer. Surprise, surprise, it is you. So you better get off your duff and learn some stuff and get some medical supplies. Hey, before we get started, I just want to mention that the new fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, greatly revised and expanded, ranks 4.8 out of 5 on Amazon and is still number one in all of its categories. If you haven't yet checked out our greatly expanded new book, You can see the black and white version on Amazon or the color standard or spiral bound at store.doomandbloom.net or altonfirstaid.com. You know, in normal times, once you've stopped the bleeding and applied a splint or dressing, the emergency is essentially over. That's in normal times. You sit and wait for an ambulance or rescue helicopter to arrive and your part is over and that is pretty much okay. In an austere setting, however... The medic must follow the status of the wound for more than just a few minutes or even hours. You're in charge until the person is fully recovered. So that means constant, diligent care. That's your responsibility. It's important to understand that a wound is not just a hole. It's part of a person who should be informed of your plans of action and participate if possible in their care. Most wounds will heal completely over time, but some may never achieve full recovery. You have to be realistic. Due to massive injuries or complicated conditions, like diabetes maybe, the best care may sometimes yield a less than optimal result even in good times. The medic's duty is to care for the patient the best they can with the limited supplies and technology available off the grid. So what are your goals? Goals of wound care include full recovery and healing, avoidance of further spread or damage or local infections, controlling pain and other symptoms, Prevention of secondary wounds such as bed sores, especially in bedridden patients. So those are some of your goals. Of course, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Institute and enforce policies that are going to help prevent wounds from being incurred in the first place, like let's say hand or eye protection for work sessions, things like that. I think it's important for the caregiver to know how soft tissue heals. There are four stages to healing. One, bleeding control, or otherwise known as hemostasis. Within seconds after a wound begins to bleed, special blood cells start to clump together and clot, protecting the wound and preventing further blood loss. The second stage is inflammation. Once the wound has clotted, nearby blood vessels reopen to allow fresh nutrients and oxygen into the wound for healing. Certain immune cells fight infection and aid in repair. 
Expect to see some redness at the wound edges, but follow them closely for spread, which could be a sign of infection. To do this, use a marker of some sort to outline the border of the wound edges. Check again regularly to see if the redness is spreading, the bad sign, or shrinking, a good sign. The third stage is growth and rebuilding. That we call also proliferation. Oxygen-rich red blood cells arrive to build new tissue. Chemical signals instruct cells to create connective tissue called collagen. This serves as structural support for other tissues to begin repair. Oftentimes, the area appears red and slowly lightens up over time. And the fourth stage is strengthening and remodeling. Over time, the new granulation tissue gets stronger. Within three months, the scar approaches the strength of the previously undamaged skin. Full healing, however, may take much longer. Now, an open wound can heal in two ways. I mentioned one of them, that's granulation, but we also call that secondary intention. There's primary and secondary intention. Primary intention, the wound is closed by the provider in some way, such as with sutures or staples. And this results in a smaller scar, but it does carry the risk of inadvertently sequestering bacteria deep in the wound. Then there's secondary intention or granulation. Leaving a wound open causes the formation of what we call granulation tissue. This is rapidly growing early scar tissue that's rich in blood vessels. It fills in spaces where the wound edges don't touch. After a period of time, it turns into mature scar tissue. And this scar, well, it's larger than if the wound was closed by primary intention, closed by the practitioner, but proper care decreases the risk of infection in many cases. A compromise between the primary and secondary intention healing process is what we call delayed or secondary closure. In some cases, it's prudent to leave the wound open for a period of two or three days with regular cleanings to give time for signs of an early infection to become apparent in the form of spreading redness, swelling, and warmth. Closure is performed after a period of observation if no such signs are present. Although the decision is sometimes difficult, it's often safest to allow a wound, especially a dirty wound, to heal on its own rather than suture or staple it closed. Wound dressings must be changed regularly, at least twice a day, or whenever the bandage is saturated with blood, fluids, or other debris. It's important to give it the best chance for rapid healing. Now, factors that can delay wound healing include infection, we mentioned that, but other things too. Smoking, alcohol use, poor nutrition, diabetes, especially if it's not controlled, and advanced age. Signs of a wound infection are spreading redness, swelling, and warmth compared to unaffected areas. The area sometimes appears shiny due to tension on the skin from swelling. In some cases, inflammatory fluid known as exudate may drain from the wound with or without a foul odor. Drainage could be watery, clear, yellow, whitish. It may contain some blood. In frank infections, pus may be noted. Now, pus is composed of liquefied dead tissue, bacteria, debris, and white blood cells. It's thicker than other exudates, which are very watery usually, and may be yellow, white, or greenish, depending on the bacteria involved. Other signs include fever and increasing pain in the area. If the infection enters the bloodstream, the patient may experience a fast heart rate, shortness of breath, or altered mental status. These are very bad signs that you may have a all-over-the-body infection, otherwise called sepsis. Antibiotic therapy and other measures should be instituted as early as possible to prevent complications. Options include amoxicillin, cephalexin, azithromycin, clindamycin, and others. Some of these are still available in aquarium medications. Let's talk about daily wound care. There are a lot of innovative techniques for wound care that are available in modern medicine. Nearly every day there's some new device or dressing or topical treatment that comes into the wound care market. And we have to decide which of these you, the medic, in austere settings can use effectively with limited supplies and maybe even no electricity. 
Okay, so you're faced with a patient who has an open wound. You've stopped the bleeding, removed any remaining debris that can cause infection and inflammation. You're progressing to now open wound care, or maybe you're taking over the ongoing care of an open wound from someone else. What's the process? First, you should explain to the patient that you're going to be doing wound care and answer any questions they might have. You may offer a pain reliever if available before you begin if it's going to be an uncomfortable process. Wipe down surfaces where fresh dressing change supplies are going to be placed and use a disinfectant, a, a very dilute bleach solution would probably be fine for this. You should wear gloves, by the way, when you're doing this. You should wash your hands before and after performing wound care, sometimes during, depending on the situation. For example, if there's a risk of contamination, you'll want to change your gloves. I think you get the idea that you probably should be stockpiling gloves if you're going to be the medic. You should consider wearing a face shield, goggles, or a protective gown if there is any chance of splatter from an infectious disease. Only use disinfected or sterilized instruments. You can want to clean and disinfect or sterilize all instruments between each dressing change. Now, if scissors are used to remove an old dressing, you probably should use a clean pair to cut the fresh dressings and tape or clean and disinfect the scissors in between. Use a barrier under the wound to absorb drainage and keep the bedding clean. Uh, Chuck's pads are what I use. They're spelled C-H-U-X. You can find them anywhere. Uh, you want to irrigate the wound with clean, drinkable water, usually warm, sterile saline, or sterile water. The solution to pollution, as they say, is dilution. You want to flush out contaminants from bacteria to dirt to shards of glass. That's a preemptive strike against future infection. The initial pressure used to flush out seen and unseen contaminants from an open wound should be pretty significant. You want to use a 60cc syringe with or without an 18-gauge needle or a 60cc feeding syringe, sometimes they're 100cc, with a tapered tip to concentrate the solution into a stream. Now, a common improvisation is to make a hole in a plastic bag to provide a stream of fluid. Most holes placed in a bag full of irrigating solution, however, won't provide the pressure needed to seriously clean most wounds. But something, I guess, is better than nothing. Try to get a good stream of fluid, but not as powerful as you might see with like a, a water pick or something like that. That's too strong. A good rule to follow for the amount of solution to use during irrigation is about 50 to 100 cc's per one centimeter, or half inch, let's say, of wound. Uh, you want to increase this amount if you are sure that the wound is badly contaminated due to the nature of the injury. For example, a stab wound that incurred while butchering an animal. This may seem like a large amount, but it underscores the importance of really irrigating thoroughly. Now, if the wound is infected or clearly contaminated, you might irrigate with something called Dakin solution, a very dilute solution of bleach and baking soda, or povidone iodine solutions like betadine during wound care. These products can also be used with wet-to-dry dressings that we've talked about on previous shows. Note that if Dakin solution is required for more than 7 to 10 days, you really should use a very weak concentration because it can be very irritating to the skin. You want to also uh, debride or remove non-viable tissue when needed. That means you're going to cut away any obviously dead tissue. Now, I'm going to talk about this later on. Mechanical scrubbing may be necessary for additional decontamination of wounds. A piece of clean cotton or a gauze square soaked in irrigation solution will work. Don't be timid. This will hurt, but you're trying to prevent infection. Remember, you're doing this for a purpose. Mild soap and water or dilute povidone iodine solution can also be used in place of the irrigation solution. Just be sure to thoroughly rinse the entire soap residue out of the wound. Although aggressive irrigation is best during the initial wound cleaning, immediately after the injury occurs, gentle flushing with warm irrigation solution should be performed in daily care. 
Use warm solutions at 98 to 100 degrees Fahrenheit to prevent cooling of the wound. Of course, you may have to use topical or antibiotics orally. Uh, you want to also use dressings and bandage applications. So you need to definitely keep an eye on the wounds. Chart or note the time and date of dressing changes, plus the appearance of the wound and any signs of infection. You want to document any treatments performed, like debridement, topical ointments application, that kind of stuff. You want to perform the wound care about twice every day or more frequently if needed, depending on just how much contamination you're dealing with. The patient may first shower or bathe after their dressing has been removed. If a dressing has dried onto the wound, then consider allowing the patient to shower or apply copious warm, clean water or saline to the dressing before removing it. This will help soften up the packing and allow the dressing to be removed with less damage to newly formed tissue. Bathing burn injuries, for example, in warm water mixed with Hibiclens or showering with a gentle soap will help keep them clean and soften up dead tissue for removal. After bathing or showering, gently irrigate the wound with warm irrigation solution and continue wound care procedures. A solution often used for wound cleaning is normal saline. It's termed normal because it approximates the natural salt content of human blood. Sterile normal saline can be purchased online or it can be homemade. To make normal sterile saline, you'll need a pan with a lid, salt, water, and sterile jars with sterile lids. You want to take two teaspoons of salt, put that in a liter of water, put that in a pan or pot, and cover with the lid. Boil it for a couple of minutes and let it cool with the lid on. And once cool enough, well, you can use it immediately, or if you don't need it just then, you can pour it into a sterile jar and cover it with a sterile lid, like canning lids. Sterile normal saline produced this way usually lasts about 30 days with the lids closed and up to 24 hours after opening, although it's best used as soon as it's produced. Interestingly, many studies find that for non-infected wounds, purified drinkable water is just as good as a concentrated antiseptic for wound healing, sometimes better. Although it's acceptable to perform an immediate first cleaning with hydrogen peroxide or alcohol, later cleaning should not use these concentrated products. New cells are trying to grow, and they do this best in a moist environment. Strong antiseptics dry out fragile new cells and may slow down healing. Now, I previously mentioned something called Dakin solution. It's an alternative antiseptic solution that's easy to make using common storage supplies. Highly contaminated, chronic, or infected wounds will heal better, according to some studies, with warm Dakin solution or povidone iodine solution if you use it for wound irrigation and in wet-to-dry dressings. To make Dakin solutions, you need just a few items. You need unscented household bleach, sodium hypochlorite solution, in other words, 5.25%, avoid the extra concentrated versions, a baking soda, uh, sodium bicarbonate, a pan with a lid, sterile measuring cup and spoon, you want to sterilize that by boiling, and a sterile canning jar and lid. Of course, you want to wash your hands beforehand, just as you would with any medical procedure. Then you want to put four cups, 32 ounces of water, into the pan and cover with the lid. Boil the water for about 15 minutes with the lid on. Remove from the heat source. Then use a sterile spoon to add a half a teaspoon of baking soda to the water and then add bleach in the amount needed. The amount of sodium chloride to add depends on how dirty or how contaminated, how infected the wound is. Full strength is 0.5% and that's 96 milliliters, about three ounces or six tablespoons of bleach is added for highly contaminated wounds. Quarter strength is good for most wounds. Uh, that's 24 milliliters, one tablespoon plus two teaspoons. That's 0.125%, and that's used for most general routine type of wound care and uh, wound uh, dressing changes. 
By the way, in case you don't know, three teaspoons equals one tablespoon, and two tablespoons equals one U.S. ounce, fluid ounce. You want to pour all this into a sterile canning jar and close with a lid if you can, and you label it and store it in a dark place. Now, once canned, it's said that Dakin solution remains potent for about 30 days, sort of like uh, normal saline. For survival purposes, however, I would make it only as I needed for wounds and maybe have, well, just make a few jars at a time. Once it's open, discard the remainder after a day or so. You may also consider using a buffered version. Um, that's one that's made by Century Pharmaceutical. They make a Dakin solution that lasts about a year. What you're going to want to do is pour the solution into the wound once daily for mildly infected wounds, twice daily for heavily infected wounds with drainage of pus. Alternatively, you can moisten dressings used inside the wound, not on top of the skin, but inside the wound with a mild strength solution and observe progress. By the way, you don't want to take Dakin solution internally. You want to watch for allergic reactions in the form of rashes or other skin irritation. This is something that's important. The Dakin should not touch the skin. It should be only in the open wound inside itself. You want to store it in darkness at room temperature. Make a new batch every few days. Don't freeze the solution. You'll want to warm it to 98 to 100 degrees Fahrenheit before you actually use it in the wound. Lower concentrations are best, as I said, if you're going to use it for routine wound care, a wound that's healing well, and certainly you shouldn't use it for more than 7 to 10 days. Uh, Dakin solution can be used as a mouthwash, by the way, for infections inside the oral cavity, but should never be swallowed. You swish for about a minute before spitting it out. And do this no more than, let's say, twice a week. Full strength Dakin solution irritates the skin. Consider protecting wound edges with petroleum jelly or some other moisture barrier or skin protectant. Look for evidence of skin rashes like burning, itching, hives, or blisters. If irritation occurs, drop it down to a milder strength or consider other options. And by the way, don't use Dakin's in people that are allergic to chlorine. should be noted that not all practitioners agree about the effectiveness of Dakin solution. Certainly, there may be other options with regards to regular wound care. Antibiotics, for example, play an important part in treating infected wounds, and a good supply is important for any medic in a remote setting. We've talked about it many times. However, Dakin's is well tolerated by patients and is simple to make with affordable ingredients, even in primitive conditions. It's another tool in the medical woodshed for scenarios where modern medical help is just not available. Now, as wounds heal, not all traumatized tissue will be replaced. Black or brown material around wound edges, that's a sign of necrosis or dead tissue, and you may have to remove it to in order to affect good healing. It might easily scrub out during your open wound cleanings, but sometimes the amount or location of it is such that it just prevents healing, no matter what. In this case, the medic may have to use the scissors or scalpel to trim off the dead tissue. This procedure is known as debridement. It isn't taught in standard first aid courses, that's for sure, but the survival medic may need to know how to do it. Debridement involves removing the devitalized tissue and any foreign objects that prevent a wound from healing. Most minor wounds heal just fine just with cleanings and regular evaluation, but more severe wounds, burns, and bed sores, these commonly require some form of debridement to eliminate obstacles to recovery. Dead tissue inhibits the development of healthy new cells, and it makes the area susceptible to infection. It can also hide signs of bacterial invasion. A variety of techniques are used to accomplish debridement, and more than one type may be used in the same patient. They follow an acronym called BEAMS, B-E-A-M-S. They include B, biological debridement. This involves the removal of dead tissue with special sterile medical maggots. 
Yes, I said maggots. Maggots are indeed the larva of flies, in this case the green bottle fly, and this species debreeds tissue by liquefying and digesting only non-viable areas, something that can't be said for every type of fly larva. They also ingest bacteria in the wound, which removes a lot of barriers to healing. So maggots are indeed a way to debride tissue. Maggots are applied directly to a wound at a dose of about 5 to 10 maggots per square centimeter of necrotic wound surface. They're left there for about 3 to 4 days and then removed and the wound is thoroughly washed. If necessary, of course, a new batch may be applied until the wound is debrided of all dead tissue. Then E in BEAMS it stands for enzymatic debridement. Special enzymes known as collagenases are applied to the wound on a daily basis. These chemicals loosen non-viable connective tissue from the bottom up. And the, unfortunately, the lack of availability of these enzymes in austere settings limits their usefulness to us as survival medics. A in beams is for autolytic debridement. Now that's the slowest but least invasive type of debridement. In autolytic debridement, a wet to moist dressing is used to help the body's own enzymes break down devitalized tissue. This works best in smaller wounds that have less necrosis. Then M is for mechanical debridement. In mechanical debridement, some type of force is applied to separate non-viable tissue from the wound bed. This is more aggressive than some other methods, may be associated with some discomfort, and involves irrigation with syringes followed by gentle but thorough scrubbing, something that I mentioned earlier. Uh, wet to dry dressings are another option. A wet to dry dressing that has been in place for a time dries out and is then removed from the wound. And the action of removing it pulls dead tissue and debris out with it. The best material to use is cotton gauze, although debridement pads are indeed commercially available. Other methods of mechanical debridement less likely to be available in austere settings include, among others, whirlpool therapy, which is essentially warm water mixed with hibiclens in a jacuzzi or in a whirlpool. Care must be taken to remove as little viable tissue as possible, though, during the procedure. And S in beams stands for sharp or surgical debridement. By far the fastest method of debridement, the sharp approach involves the use of scalpels, scissors, forceps, and other instruments to remove non-viable tissue at the bedside. Surgical debridement is more aggressive and today is usually done in the operating room under anesthesia. It removes dead material, but also sometimes viable material as well, if absolutely necessary. The removal of devitalized tissue is rarely very painful, by the way, but living tissue without anesthesia, well, that's another matter. So what you want to do is you want to wash the wound. If you're going to use sharp debridement with soap and water, iodine, povidone iodine, or hibiclens, chlorhexidine. You want to use a sterile scalpel or knife to cut away the non-viable tissue as the tissue is dead, shouldn't hurt, or even bleed. Uh, some small amount of bleeding and pain may be noted at the border with live tissue, however. Once all dead tissue is removed, you want to cover the wound with a wet-to-dry dressing. Keep the wound moist, not soaking wet, but damp. That's important, especially with burns. If the injury is on an extremity, you want to elevate it to decrease swelling. And of course, if you have them, oral antibiotics will be helpful to prevent or treat infection. Oral clindamycin, 300 to 450 milligrams orally every 6 to 8 hours. Cephalexin, 500 milligrams oral every 6 hours. Or sulfa drugs, 800 milligrams and 160 milligrams of sulfamethoxazil and trimethoprim. You use that twice a day for 7 to 14 days. These are options in situations where you don't have any intravenous drugs. Wow, that's a lot. And now let's take a little break for a word from our sponsor, Socialism. Hey, are you sick and tired of working for a living? Wouldn't it be great if you can get other people to pay for your living expenses, education, and electronics? Well, we have the answer, Socialism. 
We'll distribute the wealth for you. No need to donate to silly charities like Doctors Without Borders or Places of Worship. Let the government take your money and give it to other people. It's easy. Here's how. Go to your local voting booth on election day and pull the lever for the farthest left politician you know. Before you can say Jack Robinson, your hard-earned money will be headed to other people in no time at all. This offer not available in red states. And now for the segment of our show where I take questions posed to me in the past, often on our friend Jack Spierko's Survival Podcast. If you have questions you'd like to hear me address on the podcast, send us an email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Here we go. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival website doomandbloom.net, co-author of the Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, the fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, plus designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. I often get questions from people who ask, I take this or that medicine for this or that problem. What do I do if there's an emergency? Well, I usually start off by saying, well, what did your doctor tell you? The response is often, I haven't really asked. Okay, how bad is your condition? Um, I'm not too sure. I haven't really asked that either. But the doctor wants me to do this test. What's the test for? I'm not really sure, but I'm supposed to get it done. Now, do you see a problem here, guys? In the movie iRobot, the hologram representing the deceased robotic designer says, My responses are limited. You must ask the right questions. The main reason for people being unclear about why they're taking this medicine or why they should undergo this or that test is that they don't ask the right questions, or sometimes any questions at all. For various reasons, people seem to be reluctant to ask medical professionals important questions. When I first opened my medical office, I would recommend a medicine for a patient with a medical condition, and I was always surprised when the only response was, yes, doctor. You know, I tell medical students that the secret to a successful career as a health provider is to do certain things. Give your patients the same advice you'd give a member of your family. To me, this is number one. Do no harm. That, of course, is the other number one. Keep up with the data. Be objective. Don't judge people. Keep the patient informed. Keep all patient encounters confidential. And make staying healthy a team effort. Your health is indeed a team effort, one in which the patient, not the doctor, plays the most important role. One of the best ways to communicate with your doctor or other healthcare provider is by asking questions. If you're a member of the preparedness community, you've accumulated all this knowledge, such as learning how to grow food, how to store preps, make shelters, perform first aid, and more. Why not learn more about your own health? Armed with this knowledge, you'll have a better chance to deal successfully with medical issues. That means a better chance to stay healthy in uncertain times when medical care by professionals might be scarce. Answers to medical questions might be simple, but sometimes they're complex. You have the right to have things explained in plain English. Medical professionals speak medicalese, but you might not. If you don't understand the explanation, ask them to describe things in terms you understand. The more you ask, the more it's clear you want to be an active partner in your care. Now, here are some questions that you should ask your doctor. What will this medicine do for me? The response might be, you have high cholesterol. This drug will lower it. Okay, fine. How does it do that? What benefit will I reap from being on it? The answer might be, it'll decrease your chances of dying from coronary artery disease. This is a more logical reason to take the medicine than just lowering some lab value. What will the medicine do to me? All drugs have the potential for side effects and adverse reactions. It may be a factor as to whether you decide to take the medication, so you should be aware of them. Sometimes side effects are related to the medicine's primary purpose. Aspirin, for example, can cause bruising due to its blood thinning effect. 
Sometimes an adverse reaction is unrelated to the purpose. Antibiotics, say, could give you diarrhea. Sometimes the side effect is the reason to use the medicine. Ritidrine, an asthma medication, was found to coincidentally relax uterine muscle. As such, it was used for a time to stop premature labor. Now, will this new medicine change the way my other medicines work or their effectiveness? A lot of people have more than one medical condition and see more than one doctor. Don't think the doctors have some kind of mental telepathy with each other. Some are pretty smart people, but they're not psychic. Medicines can interact with each other. They may have a stronger or a lesser effect. In some cases, they might cancel each other out altogether. This test you want me to take, what are the things you're looking for? If doctors tell you to have a test done out of the blue, what medical issues might they find? Ask. Are there risks to this test? Which of these does the doctor believe pertain to you? Tests might be necessary, but they're not always without risks. An individual CAT scan of the chest and abdomen, for example, won't kill you, but it does give the equivalent radiation exposure of at least 100 standard chest x-rays. Another example is cardiac catheterization, the test where they check for blocked coronary arteries, a cause of heart attacks. During this test, they run a line and infuse dye into your coronaries all the way from an artery in your thigh or arm. The procedure is considered quite safe, but still has a small risk of actually causing a heart attack. Is this medicine or test absolutely necessary? What happens if I don't take this medicine or don't do this test? You should be aware of how the test results will impact your treatment. Will anything change as a result of having the test done? If a test doesn't affect the plan of action, is it really necessary? Would my condition improve if I change my diet or lifestyle? I've had periods in my life where my weight has fluctuated. When I'm heavier, my blood pressure goes up. Staying at a normal weight keeps my blood pressure within normal range. Other lifestyle changes can significantly impact your health. Not smoking, exercising regularly, that will improve your stamina. The same goes with type 2 diabetics. If you adhere to a good anti-diabetic diet, you might need fewer diabetic meds or at least a lower dosage. Is there a natural alternative to the medicine you're prescribing? This is a tricky one as many conventional practitioners aren't really aware of the benefits of medicinal herbs and other natural products. As such, they may have no more knowledge about them, or even less, than you do. But in this era of shortages, you might have to depend on natural products one day. Why not find out what might actually work to treat your condition? Let's take thyroid disease. There are a number of natural desiccated thyroid supplements on the market. If you're interested in trying something that you could stockpile, Ask the doctor if they'd be willing to monitor your thyroid levels for a time on the natural supplement. In this way, you can identify whether the supplement would actually work to keep your thyroid levels at normal. And could you explain your plan for my long-term care? Is this treatment a temporary solution or will I have to be on this medicine the rest of my life? This will help you rethink your medical supply strategy. Now be honest, did you ask any of these questions when you were prescribed this medicine or told to do this or that test? If you did, good for you. Was your healthcare provider receptive to answering these questions? They should be. If not, well, you might have to find someone who is. In the end, the more you learn, the more in charge you are of your own life. If I was told I had diabetes, I'd ask my doctor for every piece of literature that he or she had on the subject. I'd be on the computer and by the end of the week, I'd know a heck of a lot more about it. You should have the same attitude towards your health. Your obligation to your family and yourself is to have a plan of action to deal with medical issues in good or bad times. It's not just about having medical supplies as part of your preps. It's an actual plan of what to do if this or that medical issue happens and your doctor is unavailable. It's your health. Take charge of it and you'll succeed even if everything else fails. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. 
Thanks for listening. That's all the time that we have. You've been listening to the Survival Medicine Podcast. I'm Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week. Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did.